From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line, our very own Vice President of Theology. Mr. Colin Donovan is in the house if you'd like to be part of the program. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall behind the glass, spinning the dials, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, sir. So we've had some topical conversations Mm -hmm. really for... A month or two now at the beginning of the program, so we've been a little negligent in answering our email questions. Well, so let's do that. I thought in the first segment today we would knock some of those out. And uh, Kirk writes in: Can individuals try to develop the supernatural charism of healing or another gift such as prophecy? Um, I mean, you can try, but it's not a good idea to try. All the spiritual mas- masters discouraged. Discourage seeking. Now, they're St. Paul encouraging, you know, certainly to be an instrument of in the church, uh, to ask for God to give us gifts and to magnify the gifts that he gives us. But I think if we get acquisitive, you know, we tend to run uh, in the direction of what St. John of the Cross calls spiritual avarice, that we want the gifts for the gift's sake. So we have to have a certain detachment because I think God gives gifts. I think he shows to individuals that they have gifts and that they should rightly then use for his service. Uh, but we shouldn't acquisitively seek them as if we can demand them or, or uh, oblige God to give them. So I think there's a good deal of danger in doing that in any explicit way, but certainly to be open to the light of God's grace and what, uh, you know, uh, what he is asking us to do. And I'm sure that some people feel an inspiration to do that. And I think always under the condition, if this is your will, uh, would be a way to de- deal with that sense that, well, God is asking me to do something. In that way, it's a normal aspect of the spiritual life because we we should take everything first under our reason and not simply assume that because we have an idea it's from God, we must do that discernment, to discern all things and keep what is good. So we take it under reason, and if reason suggests this is legitimate, maybe with the help of a spiritual director, a help of our regular confessor, 
or even a, a prudent, wise Catholic person that you, whose judgment you trust, you know, to talk about those things and to ask that question, what, what do you think? I feel inclined to do this. And that would be true in this area or in uh, vocation or, or going into particular apostolates and so on. Uh, it would always be wise to sort of take that measured course and see where God blesses it. As Mother always said, you know, when you do something, God will bless it. If he doesn't, that's a dead end. And she was as quick to abandon things she felt were a dead end as she was to pick them up if she felt the Lord was blessing them. And she and she found herself down several of those paths. She did, they yes. They just don't make the books usually. <laughs> that, well, that's true, because they weren't successful and you don't know about You know about the, the big ones, and the right. big ones are big. Yeah, but there's wisdom in knowing when to turn around and exactly. head the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is actually reason as well in the virtue of prudence, because in prudence is not only entering upon something because you know that, you know, this is a good thing. I can do it. I have the capacity. I have the tools and means and all the things that are necessary for it. I foresee the obstacles, and uh, knowing what those obstacles are, of course, I, I pray that they be removed, and I work that they be removed. But I don't simply, you know, bull ahead like a bull in the china shop. Uh, we don't just bull ahead. We, we, we proceed judiciously, and then God blesses and shows uh, his will in that. And it, it takes a good deal of prudence to get started on that path. And, of course, it takes divine wisdom to keep us on it and get us to the destination he wants. Uh, Janet says, I'm a cradle Catholic. However, I was not sure how to answer a friend, and I don't know if she belongs to any religion, that if God creates you and knows all, then why does he create someone he knows will not choose him during life or at death? I mentioned he gave us free choice, but she mentioned that, uh, but he already knows that person will not choose him. What can I tell her? Well, he he's established certain laws. I mean, it's certainly true that in God's providence, every child that is conceived is willed by him because the human soul is infused by God at the moment of conception. Now, what that means is there is a certain way in which God, by God's will and providence, the laws of nature carry out or uh, work as they normally do. And so even in conceptions which are not, you would say, morally ideal, such as where force is used, uh, whether, you know, inside or outside the family or whatever context, uh, even in those which are evilly done in sci by scientific methodology and not by the means, you know, done in a laboratory, if you will, uh, in vitro fertilization, um, uh, creating of embryos for the sake of research and so on, as synthetically was, uh, they're obviously working towards, they've not accomplished it, uh, at least not in human beings. These kinds of things, God, the laws, if the laws of nature make it possible, then God has bound himself to, to do that, just as uh, he can suspend the laws of nature as he has done in miracles, but he's not obliged to do so, and he normally just he ensures those laws carry out to effect. So everybody who is conceived is in, not in the sense of unknown to God, because they aren't. His providence provides for that conception, but to suggest that he would intervene in all cases where the individual might turn out badly 
would to deny his creation, would be deny the free choice of Adam and Eve. It would deny the free choice of the parents uh, who conceived the child. It would deny the free choice uh, to use uh, the, those built-in laws of nature uh, and even to abuse them in wrongful, you know, morally wrongful conception. So in that sense, God's providence sees all and he continues to work for the salvation of all but his limitation is not on what he might do, but the fact that he has done certain things by creating, and in doing that, he respects our decisions, and in a way, we reap the consequences of that. But he never stops trying until the person is dead, trying to bring good out of that life, even if they have turned it to evil. Uh, so that's one of the great problems of evil, is why God does, just doesn't destroy it. But in giving us free will and establishing nature, he has bound himself to respect those very things that he himself did and to respect the choices that we make that flow from those decisions of his. And that means that he will try to save individuals, but he won't save them against their will. And so some lives don't turn out as he would uh, rather have them do. Uh, like a big shout out here to one of our uh, EWTN radio family members, uh, this week, the good folks at St. Rose Radio, uh, WSRR 99.3 FM in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, celebrating their sixth anniversary as an affiliate of EWTN Radio. Thanks to Richard and Bob and their entire team at St. Rose Radio for six solid years of Catholic programming with EWTN. Open Line Friday just getting started. If you'd like to be part of the program, if you've got a question for Colin Donovan, our Vice President of Theology, just pick up the telephone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and if you would like to be part of a mailbag segment like we just completed uh, you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com that's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Um... EWTN's National Catholic Register is indeed America's most trusted Catholic news source with a comprehensive view of the world from a distinctly Catholic perspective. 
Uh, you can actually give a gift subscription of the register, or you can subscribe yourself and you can save up to 42%. Visit at ncregister.com today. And you can also receive daily, weekly, uh, or monthly alerts from the register. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Art, uh, and this is a story that we hear from time to time. When have the good shepherds stopped going after the lost sheep? My family of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren have all left the church, and some with, and some no longer even believe in God. Since my oldest left 30 years ago, and the rest gradually followed, not one of our parish priests went out of their way to contact them, other than saying they will pray for us and our children. All eight children went to Catholic school, as did the majority of, the genera- of their generation from our parish. What are we to think? And that's from Art. Sure. Well, I guess there's the the human and the divine dimension of that. Uh, you know, how do the human shepherds deal with such cases? And that can be very complicated since every case is different. And, you know, if, uh, if the particular priest doesn't know the individual, uh, you have to honestly ask the question in asking him to speak to them, will they really have any traction with the person at all? So they're just the, the prudential, prudential judgment there. Now, grace can do marvels, and so, you know, it might be worth trying, but not every case is, uh, ha- oh, has that possibility. Uh, in, in general, uh, it's sort of what we were already talking about in the, in the opening segment a little bit, and that is, you know, God knows our free decisions, uh, this is what the church had when it speaks of predestination. It's not talking about uh, God limiting our possibility of salvation or choosing who will go to hell and who will go to heaven in that positive sense. And, you know, you, 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 heaven. Oh, you and you, hell. Now, it doesn't work like that. But he does know our choice, and he does know when we will stop and whether we will ever respond to his grace. And our Lord himself established the principle in his own public ministry in saying to the apostles, do not throw your pearls before swine. Now here's the difficulty. The human pastor doesn't know who is pre-known or predestined, either of those terms, by God to never, even at the last moment of life, accept the grace of repentance that God offers. Therefore, we in the church are obliged not to assume that and to pray for people and to act prudently and wisely in particular cases in trying to reach them using the norms of fraternal correction and these other and other things. God himself knows for whom that is, and he will stop offering it, as St. Thomas Liguri wrote, uh, when he knows that the individual will not, will not respond. We don't know when that time is, and that's why we never keep trying. The church will never assume that of any individual and to the last moment is prepared to give the last rites. And God, to the last moment, will knows whether or not the person might on their deathbed, even absent a priest, turn in repentance to him and ask forgiveness because he is ready to give it. So we have to always look at it as it's our job to go forward Uh, the job of the priest, the deacon, the lay minister, and each of us 
to never presume that somebody is lost. Obviously, we know in the world there are many outward signs of that. The person who you know, perhaps scandalously just betrays the Lord in a public way or or uh, shows complete contempt for religion or the truth or whatever. So there can be outward signs of a Judas, for example, uh, whether in the church or in the civil societies. But nonetheless, we can't assume that, and we continue to work as if, uh, as if the, the grace could win them over. God, however, knows infallibly and with certainty from all eternity which souls will accept his grace, and therefore uh, that will determine his course of action. But that's God. This is Christ, the church, and his ministers who must continue to seek the salvation of all. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Tara's watching on YouTube. She says, if you're getting a divorce and aren't the one who asked for it, are you in good standing with the church? Well, the standing of the church has to do with your state of soul. And uh, asking for a divorce when, you know, you've done the proper consultation, uh, ideally it means that you have had a consultation with the church, with your pastor, uh, as to whether this is uh, something that can't be repaired. Sometimes civil divorce is the only method of, of, of establishing who has responsibilities for, for children and assets and so on. Uh, so that can appear justified, and I think after all the prudent steps are done, that is, uh, that is the choice that some can make. The issue of the moral guilt of that is another matter. One party may be responsible for that through uh, infidelity, the other party may be the innocent party. There is no obstacle to the innocent party uh, living a full life in the church. There may be an obstacle to remarriage in the church. I think dating is imprudent in most cases until that you know, annulment is, is granted, and sometimes people do it, but I don't think it's a very prudent way of, of behaving. Uh, so there are a lot of constraints on that dimension, in that dimension, but for the innocent party, there is no obstacle there when you have been earnest and done what you could to make sure that uh, the grounds are present, you're not the cause, uh, you would rather have it otherwise, but yet this is being imposed upon you. You're not the unfaithful party or the party that wants it and seeks it. Uh, so there is no grounds for shame there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Joe is in San Antonio, Texas, listening to us today on Guadalupe Radio. Joe, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, I have a, a bit of a silly question, but um, it just it just came across my mind. I'm reading the book Frankenstein, and there's a scene where the doctor talks about imitating life from the dead, and it brings me a lot of thoughts about Lazarus, how he rose from the dead. Like, will we have a soul if, let's say, a hundred years later, science has gone so advanced that they actually bring back the dead. Would we, as human creatures, actually have a soul coming back to life? Uh, well, first of all, define coming back from the dead. 
Uh, medicine already doesn't reanimate a person. If you take anima in the normal, in the mer- narrow philosophical sense of the soul, what it does is it restarts the biological processes. So the heart stops. Um, and so the, the doctors restart the heart. The person has not died. Uh, death, metaphysical death, can occur even hours after the person has clinically, medically, biologically, uh, all the signs of death. And by that means the separation of the soul. The church looks for that uh, indicator. Uh, a warm body, even though it may be considered clinically dead, can receive the sacraments. Sometimes they're, if it's you know briefly after death or, or lo- even longer, uh, they can be given conditionally. If you are present, uh, you know, and you knew the person wanted to be baptized or wanted to hear con- have their confession or wanted to be anointed, but we never had the 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 physical moral possibility to do it. Uh, you know, and so the priest can act on that. After metaphysical death, science can go kiss a stone, and there's as much chance of the stone coming to life as a dead body coming to life. The soul comes from God. Now that means. That when the clearly dead and the dead whose soul will have left their body, such as in a Lazarus, we don't know about Tabitha, the little girl, whether she had briefly died, and that might be closer medically to a reanimation in the medical sense. Uh, But if uh, there are some saints who have raised the dead, uh, where the person was clearly and evidently dead and metaphysically all the signs were there, Uh, That is an act of God. That's not something a human being can do. That's not something an angel can do. That is something only God can do. And so science will never uh, accomplish that. Uh, So uh, we can be certain that if someone ever manifests life after, you know, a long period of being dead, of days, that something else is at work. Uh, because the devil can fake that. He can't put the soul back in the body, though. And that's the difference. Uh, And I think you have to look at the way science is going and the lack of any ethical considerations and moral considerations, much less respect for, uh, you know, civilization's longstanding development of a more moral moral ethics in medicine and so on, uh, that this will probably be attempted at some point. Uh, and whether, if there is a cooperator in that on the spiritual plane, it won't be God. Does that help, Joe? Yes. It's just um, terrifying to think that the future would be more like a, like a Frankenstein kind of futuristic world. Where well, it is a novel. So uh, put your put your hope in that. It's a novel, <laughs> and that's uh, all it will ever be. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, you know, I was researching something for a little tribute that we're doing mm-hmm. for uh, for someone, and uh, it, uh, a 25th anniversary is coming up, and in researching things that happened in 1997... Uh, that is when Dolly the sheep was cloned. That's true. Yeah, twenty-five years that. ago, yeah. and and I don't know what your feeling is, uh, but 
you know, my feeling in reflecting on that when I saw it was that, you know, we probably haven't gone as far down that road as I thought at the time we would have by now. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in terms of human cloning, uh, which would be uh, would be an interesting thing, but you wouldn't have identical creatures, be beings, because um, if it were possible to manipulate the natural laws to do it, the assumption of philosophers, Catholic philosophers and theologians, would be that there is a soul present there, and it would be two individuals because the souls would be distinct. So uh, the ways in which we can force God to fulfill his will, his own commands, uh, are sometimes mora- uh, remarkable when you think, too, of the priest who celebrates a, an evil black mass or something in another case. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a little bit of a sleepy Friday. It's a great opportunity for you to get in and ask your question of our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. The number is 833-288-3986, and it's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Um, Angela writes in, why don't the popes have miraculous powers like Peter and the apostles had? Good question. Well, you know it is. And uh, at the beginning of the church, uh, you needed, you know, you needed particularly holy people. They were graced to have uh, the presence of Christ. Uh, and so I think not only their uh, ecclesiastical prerogatives of being the apostles. Uh, a never-repeated office, although they created bishops, there have only been, you know, the 12 apostles, um, not counting... Uh, uh, Paul or Matthias. Well, you could say 13 if you went that way, not counting Judas, who was an apostle but lost it. So, But anyway, other than those quibbles. So I think the, the, the largest reason is that it depends a good deal on the sanctity of the individual and the, the will of God. Uh, there have been lots of holy people who didn't have miraculous powers and may have been holier than some who seem to have healing gifts. Uh, charismatic gifts are not dependent upon holiness, but generally you find that great holy people who ask God for stuff also uh, also have their prayers answered. This is why uh, the uh, uh, fame of inner power of intercession, the two things which lead to being declared blessed is uh, fame of holiness and fame of intercession. The, inter- the holiness is tested by the, by the uh, process by which heroic virtue is established, and the intercession is by the miracle that is given and offered for beatification and a second for canonization. So the prayers of a holy person avail much, a prayer of a good person, as uh, I think St. James says something along that lines. So that's the, one of the characteristics. You don't have to be holy as Pope. You ought to be, but you don't have to be. And there are there are stories uh, in the in the lives of recently deceased and living popes and uh, popes emeriti. If we categorize them in future ones, or he in future ones, 
uh, which suggests that people have been healed by their prayers and, and so on. I know with John Paul there were uh, some cases of that. So it, it can happen, but I think it's more has to do with their closeness to God and their appeal to God. Uh, with uh, We tend to think power sometimes as, you know, like the superheroes. Uh, they use them at their own will. There comes a point in which that may be true, but because it's been established in the mind of God that their will is usually his will or is always his will. That's more the precondition for the exercise of miraculous powers is that... Well, and that largely explains our Blessed Mother. Yes. She was given so much because her son knew that she was fully conformed to his will. And yet we never hear of her doing anything miraculous other than prompting the kid to do to do some miracles. Well, you know, and it's also, when you were talking, I, it, it occurred to me, and I, I'm certainly not trying to, you know, propose that I have the mind of God on this, but it, I was thinking that, you know, uh, the accounts we have that of the apostles and everything were basically given to us by people who were there and witnessed it. Right. They weren't based on legend or well-known stories, and perhaps in that scenario the chances of cult of personality were far less than they would be in every subsequent society which has had greater communication capability. That That's certainly true, uh, and there's a great deal of danger with that. But I, I think if you go by the principle I was enunciating, uh, when uh, a person could have a charism of healing but not be very holy because a charismatic gift is not dependent on the holiness. You would think, well, it ought to be, but it's quite clear that it, it isn't, and there's no claim of that in sacred scripture. Well, sometimes the dichotomy there makes the point. Well, it makes the point that it's a charismatic gift, and it's not, right. it, it, you know, you're not a Padre Pio, or you're not a Mother Teresa, or, you, or, or, or someone like that. This has to be the Holy Spirit. Right. Because I know you. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and I'm sure those who knew them probably, you know, you know one or two, because who, whoever really not knows not the their, carpenter's son? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> and that was a relative, I think, that said that. So it, there is a lot of mystery there, but it's an important distinction to make. And that's why I, I, I've read that uh, someone who asserted that the reason the saints can do miracles is because they have done the will of God. And they get to the point where they're so faithful to the will of God that when they make a promise and commit will go, your son will be healed. The son will be healed. Now, Christ is exceptional because the, the, agent, uh, the agent of saying it and the agent of doing it is the same. But I think it's true that we, the more we're united to the will of God, the more God is expressing his will through you. And the saints can say things, you know, you will be healed. And Padre Pio certainly did that, and, and the more the more outstanding cases of it is clear, but I think there are many lesser cases where holy people will pray for others and they'll be healed, and you may not make the attribution, especially in contexts where you're asking a lot of people to pray for you. It can be the collective prayer, but it may be that one particularly holy individual who's praying as well. So it's a very confusing area because we can hardly, in most cases, point to a person and say, aha, this person's prayer is always heard. We can when it's a Padre Pio or a Mother Teresa, and, and, you know, they say stuff, it happens. Next stop for us is Whitesville, Kentucky. Bruce is in Kentucky listening on Savior Radio. He's a first-time caller. Bruce, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Thank you. My question is about St. Michael the Archangel. Yes. 
if I understand it right, saints are people that have deceased, and angels are created by God. But he is referred to as Saint Michael, the archangel. I'm either misunderstanding something, or I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, how he is called well, you, Saint Michael. You you are, but believe me, it's a common one. I probably heard it a hundred times over in recent, you know, over the years. Uh, think of it this way: the principal characteristic, you know, Saint John says God is love, and he who abides in God abides in love, and God in him. So love, that means holiness, is the singular spiritual characteristic of God. All those who are holy abide in God and God in him. The saints were not holy in that sense that their, the angels were not holy in that sense at their creation. They're holy because they accepted the will of God in their first moral act. And the other fellows are unholy because they did not. Human being, it's a little bit more complex because we have our whole life to work it out, but I wouldn't recommend anyone wait to the last minute to figure out whether they want to be holy or unholy. Yeah, the angels had one shot. The angels had one shot, and they adhered to it fiercely once that decision was made. And so from that moment, they were perfectly just and holy like God. And we can be through baptism and persevering in baptism to the end of our life to be holy like God. So the saints are those who are particular, particularly remarkable examples. It's not, a, it's not a category of totality that everybody who is holy and dies holy will be declared a saint. But they're the remarkable examples set before the world, often because of their state of life or their profession or their remarkable deeds. The church says, aha, here is a man or woman or child, increasingly children, uh, who exemplifies fidelity to God and the holiness of life that Christ himself had and which we are called to imitate. Uh, so in that way, the saints are there. But here's a thought. The next time you say the fa- Our Father, it starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only the angels were in heaven when Jesus said those words. They are, are in a way, our first examples of complete and total fidelity to God. And so they are certainly entitled to be called the, the saints or the holy ones, which is what that means. Does that help for you, Bruce? Uh, yes, I believe it does. Uh, so basically, he's called a saint, not because he was ever dead <laughs> became he, no, he's yeah. called a saint because he is holy right exactly in fact saint paul uses that generically he you know he writes to the saints in corinth the holy ones in corinth is one way it's often translated so you you could say that we use we use saints in a very generic way when we just speak of the just all of those who are holy in the state of grace uh, I mean, there's three people here. I'm going to assume we're all holy right now. Uh, so there are three saints uh, here in the studio, Mike behind the, the board and Jack here and myself, and anybody who is just. But then the church has saint in a more technical way, the big S with the T and the period after it, or the word in front of their name. And that indicates that the church has looked at carefully at their life and set them as the examples that I was talking about. So, yeah, we can use it both ways, and we do use it both ways. 
God bless you, Bruce. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. James is watching on Facebook Live. He says, when they say, bow down for the blessing, is it okay to lay prostrate on the floor or do just clergy lie flat on the floor in rare occasions? It's generally good for one's humility to follow what is the general practice rather than doing something exceptional. And so, you know, what is intended there is to to bow your head uh, to receive the blessing, say, at the end of Mass. When it's done in ordination, that's the exceptional case, and it's commanded by the rubrics for the ordination, so that's obliged of them, while the, the, generally the singing of the litany of the saints is done, beseeching God to pour down his graces upon them. Uh, so I would say it, it's sufficient to do that. Generally, most spiritual authors discourage overt acts of piety, uh, that set oneself apart from others for the very reason that our Lord discouraged his disciples from imitating the Pharisees to stand on the corner and beat their breasts in great, you know, weeping and wailing for the sinners who weren't as holy as they were. That, that even if done in great simplicity, you know, the, the you know, others may get the wrong impression. Uh, so that would be a reason not to not to do it. Uh, I've got an email here from Ron. He says, I believe in hell, but I find the descriptions of it hard to believe. The Bible speaks of it in very graphic detail, as well as the visions of the saints through the centuries. The extremes of punishment seem beyond justice into the cruel realm. Corruption, their worm will never die, toxic smells, sulfurous (laughs) fumes, everlasting fire, frustration, gnawing and gnashing of teeth. Since hell lasts forever... There's already an infinitude to the punishment uh, present. Why must the extreme forms of torture exist as well? Wouldn't eternal loneliness, loss of God, and regret be enough? Yeah, and that's that's surprisingly uh, a common uh, perspective. Uh, you have to look, I think, that the existence of hell is a given. It's the church, our Lord teaches it, the church teaches it. Uh, some try to explain it away. Uh, God will be merciful at the last with everybody and nobody will be there, those kinds of things. Um, you know, there, there's no evidence of that in Revelation or tradition. So I think we have to take it at this, and that is John Paul II, uh, uh, back in the 90s, he gave uh, some catechesis at his Wednesday audiences on heaven, hell, and purgatory. And uh, he did, as you suggested, he explained them primarily in terms of the, uh, the, the loss of God. That's the spiritual punishment, after all, uh, that we lose God for all eternity. Uh, the, the physical things that are there certainly describe that in the reunion of body and soul, or even in the soul as it awaits that reunion uh, at the end of history, uh, there is this you know, uh, objective is reunited body and soul. The body will share in that, uh, will share in that reward or punishment. The question would be exactly how that will be accomplished. That is up to God. Theologians have had theories and explanations of that. 
uh, Aquinas, you know, material fire will be made to touch the soul or the spiritual soul of the person, which is certainly possible for God. But but not any of these things are dogmatically defined into what extent what what the realities are that they point to, whether they point to a, a kind of uh, physical or not, we have to say that the physical body of the of the damned person uh, will share in the punishment in some way. So I think there is an analogousness between what the body will experience and the things which the mystic sees and scriptures uh, describe. How exactly that's accomplished, uh, you know, that's not part of our our. Our job description to to determine that, uh, but I think if we believe in the unity of man, body, and soul, uh, and we believe that our bodies will share in the glory of our souls, then we have to believe then that the bodies will share in the ignominy of the soul's punishment, and so that's what those things are aimed at pointing out to us, and how God will effect that sharing by the bodies as has been graphically described, uh, I think we can leave that to him. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Henry would like to know, on the cross, Jesus says, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why did he feel abandoned if he was choosing to die for the remission of sins? Yeah, that's that's a puzzler. And I think the best explanation I have heard is that, uh, of course, we know that he sweat blood in the garden. We know, and it's been suggested, that he saw all the sins of every person who lived. Uh, that would be humanly impossible, not impossible for the Son of God made man. Uh, and so the, the suffering of that moment was so immense that the physical, his physical body uh, uh, sweat blood. And likewise, I think on the cross, the not his despair, but it represents, I think, the despair of mankind, and it's pre, and is previewed in Psalm 22. I think it's that's the psalm uh, in which these words are, are in there, and I think there's one of the the, the movies. Um, I don't know, it might be Jesus of Nazareth, uh, where. The rabbi is standing under the cross, and Christ said these words. And he says, even now, he quotes scripture. So it was for our benefit, but it expresses the truth of the weight of the sin that he took upon himself, uh, that existential, you know, suffering that he experienced. uh, And only he could have taken that on. Uh, And I think those words express it well. Uh, and I think they were, as I said, previewed by the psalm, uh, this, this, you know, context of the, of the whole of man suffering spiritually because of, uh, because of man's sins. Probably a good follow-up to the hell question, actually, because it, what must the suffering of the damned be for all eternity uh, if Christ experienced so much um, divine person that he was? on the cross in his human nature. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Be sure to check out Bear, the Bear Wozniak Adventure uh, this Saturday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Bear's guest this week is Catholic speaker Melissa Foley. That's the Bear Wozniak Adventure Saturday night, 6 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. 
Victor would like to know, can you please elaborate on whether the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacrifice on the cross are the same sacrifice? They certainly are, but in different ways. Uh, The Council of Trent said that the sacrifice of the cross is represented in a sacramental mode. The sacramental mode is for example, expressed by how in each of the sacraments, the outward signs tell us what is taking place uh, in the sacrament. Uh, The water and the words of baptism tell us what is occurring there. Uh, The laying on of hands and the oil tell us in confirmation, likewise in ordination, uh, in penance, the, uh, the, the sins we bring, the words of absolution of the priest, uh, tell us in form, using that idea of form there, uh, tells us what's taking place there, the absolving from sin. And in the sacrifice of the Mass, the union between uh, the sacrifice of Christ on the, on the cross and our sacramental participation in that sacrifice on Calvary is that twofold consecration by which death is signified. So it's a sacramental mode. It's not as some Protestant apologist trying to attack the, uh, you know, the Catholic view would say that we're killing Christ or Christ is dying every time or anything like that. Um, I wouldn't say it's mystical in the strict sense, but it is sacramental in the way that the Council of Trent defined it and brings us in that way directly in contact with that sacrifice and the merits of that sacrifice. That was why each Mass has the same infinite value as Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, because it is the same sacrifice represented in an unbloody fashion, um, but yet uh, accomplishing everything that Christ's sacrifice on Calvary did. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Next stop is the great state of Ohio. Maddie is in Ohio listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maddie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, how are you doing today? Pretty good. What's your question today? Um, I wanted to ask about indulgences. Mm-hmm. Um I never really learned properly what they are, but from my understanding is like you pay money to the church and they help you get out of purgatory faster. <laughs> you mean it's like a toll booth? You put the money in and yeah. you get get through the booth? Yeah, I, uh, I figured that doesn't sound right, but I couldn't really figure out what yeah, well, it was supposed to be. <laughs> you're living in a crowded room, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not the only one who thinks that. I would say over the centuries, the church has done a singularly bad exp- uh, job of, of explaining it. Um, well, I'll, I'll give my little effort, and I would suggest go to the catechism, for example, and read about it. Or, um, I'm not sure we have it online because it's probably copyrighted, but there there is, you can get the Incuridium of Indulgences, the current one is from like 2006 or seven. And there is, uh, what we do probably have is Paul VI's letter explaining uh, the idea of indulgences. And that's extremely helpful because it's really quite simple. We just talked about the sacrifice of the Mass. We just talked about the sacrifice of penance. Penance does what Christ told the apostles to go do on Easter night, to absolve from sins and send the, the penitent out 
uh, knowing that they were free of the of the punishment due to those sins. They were free of the of the bond of sin itself, which holds us down and keeps us from acting rightly and keeps us sometimes in the chains of of terrible moral slaveries. Uh, and that breaks those bonds. Now we can crawl back into our hole, but hopefully with God's grace we we won't do that. And here in the case of indulgences, that grace of the sacrament is extended. So when we go into the confessional and we are repentant, if we are repentant in the in the purest sense of that word is that we are completely abhorred by uh, abhorrent our sins we find abhorrent and we know that we have offended God who is so good and we turn our hearts totally to him then in that moment we can be totally absolved not only of the eternal break with God which mortal sin in particular does uh, which Christ merits is what do that but even of the temporal punishment I don't think anyone has ever come around and said, well, I know you're sorry for not paying your debts, but I'll pay your debts for you. If you do, we would consider that person, you know, showing a great showing a great grace to us or a great indulgence, you know, to take away our physical debts. So we have some temporal debt from all of our sins because it sort of spreads out in waves from when we do it to people we don't even know by our bad example or by our words you know, on radio. I think of this a lot, you know, what... What bad example do we give by our words sometime in trying to explain the truth? Uh, all of these things have consequences beyond what we can see. But God is prepared to help heal those when we cannot, because we cannot see them. The consequences in us and the consequences in, in the, the just order of society. And so an indulgence is the willingness to approach the church and Christ through the church to take, you know, to deal with that now rather than to be purified uh, at the end of, uh, end of time. And it's not a matter of tit for tat. It's a matter of coming with the right intention, and it's a matter of doing the simple thing, you know, like the, the Aramean told to go wash in the Jordan, but that was too simple for him. But the church is saying, here's something simple you can do, that you can pay this temporal debt of the consequences and the effect on justice in the, in, the, in the world, in the universe, if you will, by doing this simple thin, thing. We ought to want to do that uh, because that will help heal, the, uh, heal all the disorder in, in the world, and we want to contribute to that. So we do something simple. Christ ultimately is the one who accomplishes it in us, uh, but it's our willingness to do that which is the value for us. Have a great weekend, Colin. And you as well, Jack. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it on Monday. Until then, God bless. <laughs>